Welcome to Chaintech, the show and podcast focusing on the latest trends in supply chain, procurement, and logistic technology. My name is Max Henry from the Global Supply Chain Council, and together with my co-host and special guest, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in supply chain. From early stage to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help drive more innovative, agile, and resilient supply chain around the world. This is Chantech. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Chantech. I'm your host, Max Henry, from the Global Supply Chain Council. Thanks again for joining us on this new episode of the show as we continue to host some of the most interesting chain tech founders and discuss the rapid rise of supply chain logistics and procurement technology across the APAC region in Europe and elsewhere. As we jump into today's conversation, I want to make sure that, again, you are aware of the Chaintech platform that we have recently launched. Uh, you can visit it on Chaintech.net, and you can also find all the previous episodes and interviews of the Chaintech show on the website on Chaintech.show. So today I'm joined by um, Sheldon Mida, who is the CEO of Supico, uh, based in the UK. Hi, welcome, Sheldon. How are you? Hi, Max. Uh, lovely to be here. I'm well. Thanks for having me. Great. So we always start with our episode, our interview with, you know, a little bit of, uh, on your background. So can you tell us, you know, um, where you're from, you know, how was, you know, uh, maybe t- tell us more about this, the early part of your life, okay, before you start, you know, your company. Wow, sure. Uh, how far back do you want to go? Uh, I was born in London. Um, uh, my jump straight into business. Uh, I, I was a self-conscious kid. I wore glasses. I couldn't wait to get my glasses off. I was so self-conscious. Uh, patch, you know, wore a patch when I was a tiny little kid. So I went through through my early years quite quite self-conscious. Uh, my own image, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I guess that's quite common for mo- for most kids. But as soon as those glasses came off. I started wearing contact lenses and I became a very out, outgoing and quite gregarious person. Um, so that was a big changer for me. Um, that really did change things. Long story, you know, jumping forward, my, my first business, I started aged, it's my first real business because I was always into doing, you know, certain little things like trying to run tuck shops and, 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 you know, all these sorts of things you do as a kid. Um, I started my first um, company uh, when I was 17 years old, fitting car stereos from the boot of my mother's old Honda Accord at uh, a number of Peugeot dealerships uh, around London. Uh, and, I, and I grew that company, actually. Uh, we, we grew it. Uh, from, from that, we grew it to a number of different branches or, or garages in northwest, north, north London and west London. Um, we hired a bunch of agents uh, running around uh, fitting car stereos, electric windows, central locking, tow box, you, you name it. The okay. thing about cars then, none of them had anything factory fitted. It was all retrofit. So we tied up some very big contracts with Peugeot and then ended up doing all of the 
retrofit electrical work for Peugeot Motor Company at all of its factory-owned dealerships for, for six wow. years. It was, it was okay. a great first experience. So you did actually didn't go to university? You didn't study? You, you went straight walking at 17? Uh, I know it's, it sounds really trite to say I went to the University of Life, but I, I, I kind of did, to be honest with you. Uh, okay. I got, I jumped straight into the commercial world and, um, and, and I, and I started building myself from there, learning. Yeah. Uh, I didn't have any academic tuition around, uh, auto electronics and, and, and I was halfway through my career in that, in that, in that industry. I was known as the, 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 the doctor, uh, <laughs> um, fixing a, a nature of different electrical repairs as well as doing electrical accessories. In, indeed, our, our invoices were, were recognised by Peugeot Motor Factory, and we did all of the, the electrical warranty pairs for the factory in the UK. It was uh, wow. it was a very very different time, very old school. Um, so okay. my, my earlier years were somewhat of a of, of a of a real learning learning okay. curve for me. So what happened after six years and running this business? Um, I said, so, so that took us up to 1989. Uh, there was a big recession in the UK that hit, uh, interest rates, mortgage interest rates went up to 16%. I didn't own a property at the time. In fact, we were, we were doing very well for ourselves and, and, and weren't concerning ourselves with, with buying property back then. I was still only 23. Um, and so, um, we saw the writing on the wall and we decided to, to close the, the, the thing is as a recession hit, we were really, really busy because we were so busy on fleet contracts being paid 14 pounds an hour, which sounds a lot back then. It was a lot back then. Yeah. 14 pounds an hour for electrical repairs, 28 pounds an hour for electrical, uh, for, for repairs and accessories, uh, fitting respectively. So we were really busy on fleet contracts up and down the country because these fleet contracts are still being renewed. 5,000 companies going out to the BBC, for example. So a lot of work. Meanwhile, the, 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 the retail mechanics were standing around, uh, a, a lot of the time being paid £5.50 an hour. We were paying a lot more, being paid a lot more. So essentially, the mechanics were taught to do our work. We then became a little bit more redundant to, to requirement, as you, as you'd imagine. Um, yeah. and the writing was on the wall. We saw things slipping away and we decided, um, being the age that we were, it was actually my brother and I, he was my partner, uh, uh, to, to, to get out. Uh, and I went off to America. I also went off to Israel. I studied okay. in Israel. I studied a Hebrew diploma in Israel. Uh, I also worked in a concrete factory. That was my first, my first, uh, um, corporate job. Well, my, well, it was a, it was a concrete factory in the desert. Uh, not something that you that you'd say was very health and safety nowadays, but wow, it was a it was an interesting interesting time. It was my first dip into supply chain, if you like, um, really working okay. working this concrete factory called Spancrete, and then I got a job working in the motor trade, of course, fitting electrical repairs, uh, and I did that for a year and a half. Then I went off to America, um, had lots of fun out there doing a few different things and meeting some some friends. It, 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 it was a fun time. I was twenty three. Um, as I said, um, and then I came home to London. Uh, my father was, was very stressed me being in the US. This was, a, this was around the time that there were, um, tourists were notoriously being mugged on their way out of Miami airport. And I was in Florida. Uh, and, and although that was very isolated, 
it didn't seem that way when it was reported on the news back in the UK. And my dad was very stressed and I ended up coming back home to London. And I've okay. Been ever since. So what did you do then back in London? Um, what was your next venture? I was a, I, I started working as a business manager, uh, for Peugeot Motor Company. Uh, I, uh, started running one or two other organizations, uh, building, creating one or two other organizations. Uh, I, I was also a promoter in the, in, in the entertainment industry and promoted, um, a, a, a club night that became very, very successful all around London. It was called Utopia, became a very, very well known. I like to call it a rave night, but I guess back in the day, that's exactly what it was. It was a very, very popular event. Um, I did that for, for, for a while. Good fun. Got out. It wasn't really a career. It, it was something that I wanted to do. Uh, and I, I'm, and I've always been into, into, into music and entertainment anyway, to be honest with you. Yeah. And I married a musician, uh, a singer. Um, and, um, and, and, and I also, uh, ended up where I decided to make another change and, and, and go to work in IT. Um, for a consultant, for, for essentially for a recruitment company that was, as all recruitment companies are, that was trying to become more of a consultancy than a recruitment company by, by rather than just winning body shopping pieces of work, it was trying to, to secure pieces of work projects that it could take away entirely and deliver against. Um, so I, I, I joined that company to do that. And I joined at the bottom of the ladder as the newbie. And uh, I was the first person in that company to successfully win three pieces of work, um, actually from BT. Um, okay. Yeah. And, 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 uh, and one of those pieces of work, but bear in mind this is a while ago. So one of those pieces of work was to, was to, was to take this, this proposition to, to take a big chunk of their business model and put it online. So this was essentially to become okay. BT.com, uh, as a fully fledged operating space online, which is what we know today as, uh, as the standard really. Um, but it wasn't then, then websites for brochure stands. They really were. They were a little more than brochure stands, even for companies like that, because it was quite early on. Um, I would have been about 30 at that point. I'm a little bit older than that now. Um, okay. So we did that, uh, and, and very, very, very successful. Uh, we also helped, and my background was in Siebel Systems, working for this organization, sourcing Siebel Systems. Um, and one of the requirements that BT had was after having purchased uh, a lot of BT, a lot of Siebel kit from Siebel, um, but they didn't necessarily have the the resources to unpack it and install it. Mm. Um, so I helped them with that uh, by flying off to, to, to California and, and bringing back the skills, not in me, but in others. Okay. Brought them back. They helped me run these programs. And, and for a couple of other programs, and I made a bit of a name for myself at BT as, as they used to call me the, the person that could find an, a three-legged monkey from outer Mongolia. And there's, there's somebody that <laughs> one of the directors of BT retail major business. I still have a very good relationship with now. 
Okay. Uh, I still know a lot of the the the, the, the guys that that you know from BT back in back in the day. Uh, I'm very much a okay. relationship person, so that's, that's what I did. Okay. That was pretty much the precursor to what would come next, um, because I did that. I did that for for a couple of years, and then I got headhunted uh, into a company called Blanville, which was a small company. It was it was probably turned, it had a revenue of about one and a half mil. Um, um, they asked me to come along and rebuild my business, um, but by, by, and they offered me a great a great uh, package to come along and help grow and own and grow the you know, part ownership and grow the company. So I did, um, and we turned it into a, a Times listed fast track or tech track 100 company winning twice in a row, uh, taking it up to, I think, 11 million pound in revenue in year three. What was uh, the name of the company? Blue Anvil. Okay. All right. And what, what were you doing there? What, what was the, the, the main, um, you know, I was, I was doing exactly what I did. I was building relationships with organizations like BT okay. and helping them to reshape some of the external partnerships that they had with other organizations. So we would look at, we would look at the, the proposals that other organizations had, their, their, their kind of strategic partners, if you will, were, okay. were submitting. Uh, and we would take those proposals away and we would extrapolate from them the key resource we would then bring those key resources. so their, their proposals would still go forward but we would we would extra, we, we, we would we would remove the key roles rebadge them through blue anvil they would essentially have blue anvil blood running through their veins but they would then be passed into bt to push ownership back into bt that bt to, to give bt far more visibility of what was going on through their strategic partners um, by, okay. by by pulling those senior roles out and, and pushing them back in directly into BT, uh, and we did that for a number of years. It was it was called the Accountable Managed Resource Program, um, and it was and it was responsible for saving BT uh, many millions of pounds. It was a, a very successful program. And okay. We did that for nine did that for nine years through BT wow. okay. and All a number right. of other companies, um, and the company. As I said, won a number of awards and accolades for doing so. So, what brought you and to start Superco then? So, uh, after doing that with that company for many, many years, I stepped away. Uh, I wanted a rest. Uh, I, 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 I just you know, staff and, 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 and big company structures, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, I decided I'm going to have a rest from that, um, and so I. I, I did have a rest, and then I played a bit of golf. So I wasn't into cycling back then. I was just into golf. I wasn't very good at it though. Um, <laughs> and as uh, so we used to do annual BT golf events, we did we did a BT Blue Anvil BT Classic every year, and we used to nominate charities, and it was really really good fun. Anyway, um, I was still no good at golf. I even had professional lessons whilst I was there, so I could perform <laughs> at these annual events. Didn't do any good. Um, anyway. So uh, you played some golf, and then I decided to to go out as a consultant, working for organisations like BT or enterprise organisations that were going through 
through um, to con- continue the kind of things that we were doing, advising companies on on transition modeling strategy, whether they were going through outsource or divestment or merging or acqu- or acquiring uh, or being acquired. Um, uh, and my speciality had always been focusing on transition modeling of these organizations, uh, taking large, large volumes of contracted services and moving them from A to B, um, whilst ensuring service continuity, but not just service continuity, but an optimized level of service. Because what happens is you transition through these kind of exercises and everything kind of you can just about you just about keep the lights on some of the time, some of the time. Um, my view was for, for me, it was always about let, 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 let's focus on really driving top line value through these engagements rather than just looking down at the numbers, ensuring that the contracts, you know, the, the lights stay on. I mean, the contract typically contains anything 10 to 15 percent de facto pre-negotiated margin. There is an opportunity there, but it's quite finite. Um, the relationship space, um, typically upward of 25% over term, if you explore what comes through that top line in terms of innovation and collaboration, shared R&D, all of these things that come through mature relationship management. Um, but there's a, there, there, there are all sorts of additional values that can be found short of going totally strategic and, and really driving shared agendas. There's still a ton of stuff that you can do together if you focus on, on having a better relationship. So I, I did that for a number of years, a number of years. And a lot of the companies that, that I had worked with, uh, including Lloyd's and Fujitsu Services and T-Systems, for example, um, as I was involved in some big projects, I was the IT, uh, the TSA lead, Transitional Service Agreement lead for all of the IT contracts in the, in, in the Verdi divestment of Lloyd's Bank, which was where 41% of Lloyd's Banking Group was bailed out by the public uh, and then had to go through a regulatory divestment to actually create a new bank with that with, with that 41%. Um, so involved in some, some, some great pieces of work. Um, and, and, and a lot of these companies, as I said, cities are very, very good templates in terms of transition, transition modeling for these sorts of exercises where we are moving large volumes of services and contracts from place to place. It gives us a, an instant insight into where the exposures are, where the gaps are, where the opportunities are in, in, in a real dynamic way. Uh, and they also, uh, looked at the different opportunities for value that came out of the same exercise. So um, they, they, obviously they, they, those organizations adopted some of these templates. Fujitsu used to call it their pan, uh, their, their pan account. Uh, um, talk, I can't remember what they call it now. God, their pan account toolkit. And it used to help them, used to use it in their pre-bid exercises because it gave them so much more insight into, into, in, into a client in a pre-sale setting. Uh, into a client's estate, um, which is invaluable. Um, so I thought, well, this, there's clearly a big market. There's a market for SRM anyway. There's, there's no tech that does SRM. It's all spreadsheets and PowerPoints. And I spent years with working with these organizations, creating formulas with spreadsheets mm. that would emulate subjective behavior type, you know, activity. And you can't really measure that. It's like nailing the proverbial jelly to a wall, isn't it? So 
Um, we used to take the, I used to rack my brains over these formulas that would turn this behavior into something objective. Because once it's now, if it's objective, we can measure it and drive value mm. from it. But again, no tech to do it. So I created the tech. That was my mission. To, okay. It was kind of fed up of the old normal. So I thought, right, we're going to do something better. So Supico was born, right? So Supico was born. Yes, that's right. <laughs> All right. That's a long process. It's a, you have a very rich and diverse background. So well, just you know, tell a lot of these, yeah. I was going to say a lot of these platforms, they, you know, they, they, if, look, if you're a business founder, I mean, Max, you'll have spoken to so many people like myself. There are, there are tech founders, there are non-tech founders. If you're a non-tech yeah. founder, it's because you've got great, you've, you've, you've got experience of business and, and, and what works well in business, but you have, you have no idea of how to implement it because you're a non-tech founder. So, yeah. I mean, that, that I, I would put my hand up and say I, I, I sit in that category initially. Can you tell us what is Supico doing in just one sentence? So Pico is a collaborative relationship platform for supply chain and the ecosystem. Okay. So what problem are you solving today with Supico? What is the biggest, the biggest problem in resilience? In my view, I could think, I think you could say one word, maybe even two. For me, the biggest challenge to resilience nowadays is visibility. Sure, we can go off and we can talk about all the different things that are going on. But all these things are going on, but unless we know about them, well, we can never do anything about them. So that, so, so, and you can boil all of that, all of that down to one word, visibility. But if we boil it down to two words, actionable visibility, now you're talking because now you can do something about it because having a shop window into the damage, into the resilience, into the disruption or into the outside world is no good unless you are empowered to do something about it. Mm. And so visibility is great. Actionable visibility is, is, is the piece to resistance. Okay. So what, what are some, what are some of the biggest benefits that your solution is bringing to your customers right now? If you, if you had to, Pick one or two. What will it be? And maybe I'll give us an example uh, to go with it, so people can understand it. Um, so we provide an equitable platform for the customers and the suppliers to come together to deliver on, to deliver or to, to deliver products, or to or, or, or to deliver on services, uh, to spot the problems, to work on the problems. The, the challenges together. Um, I'll give you an example because we could go on and on with these different these examples, and, and, and we'd end up going down into the minutia, which I know isn't a lot of good for a radio show or a podcast. Um, we have um, we have situations where suppliers are on the platform, uh, and there is increasing legislation. Okay. Increasing legislation means increasing compliance. Okay, historically legislation. If you if you listen to Ecovadis did a study, they said that 100% of the suppliers that they surveyed said that the CSR clauses that were pushed out into contract weren't worth the paper they were written on because they had no bearing on reality. And that's history of CSR. And if you think of CSR, you're kind of talking about the S in ESG. 
right? Um, so uh, that need, that situation needs to change because as as legislation is increasing and increasing and increasing, so is compliance, but so is whistleblowing. Okay, which means and with whistleblowing comes an increased risk in reputational damage. Companies don't want branded merchandise found in landfill. They certainly don't want to be associated with with uh, unethical trading practices, child labour, etc., etc., poor health and safety, you name it. Very, very serious. Um, so how do you get from a place of legislation and box ticking, as we know, used to exist, and and, and something that, that, that is a, an assured way of trading? So... This is what one of the things that we do. The customers are on the platform. The suppliers are on the platform. They have their produce or service lines on the platform, and they are able to, and, and so are all of the legislative requirements, such as the SMETA reports, for example, or SA8. There are so many, to be honest with you, and as more legislation increases, there are different standards that, that are being introduced as well. So um, the it's important that, um, that companies are able to upload uh, companies on the ground down in the footprint. Okay, so, so compliance needs to be down in the footprint, not up here where the where the glossy slideware lives, because that's not okay. true. That's not real. So um, suppliers uh, are able to log onto the platform into into their product lines or service lines uh, on an individual basis, individually, all of the stakeholders, the entire community. Uh, is is able to access a very data controlled, data flow controlled, omni-channel environment where all of their produce and service lines live, and they can upload compliance evidentiary you know, imagery. That, for example, it could be evidence of um, eyewash facilities in a in a chemical factory, or or, or, or print or, or decibel figures in a print factory. Or, or, or photographic evidence of ergonomic space at a, an industrial sewing machine in a garment okay. factory. All right. All of this All stuff right. is very, very, very important, and it can be uploaded into the platform. Um, and in seconds, in second, and this is down. This is specifically a change that came in through through customer requests. We want to be able to bring our third party auditors straight into these product lines. Okay, we don't want to have to go through hardware, software build, vetting, bring these people online with accounts. It takes a month. This compliance needs to be now. So we want to bring, be able to bring these third party auditors straight into this product line in under 30 seconds securely so that they can upload certification and validate by way of driving traceability the, the assurances given or evidence on the platform. That is end to end traceability. It's something that we do very well on our platform. Uh, for for a number of customers, so all that information we get uploaded by the suppliers get verified by a third party uh, person before they actually verify. reach before we reach all, to the customer. No, it all happens no. online. It all happens. It, well, the I know, system. I know. It's end to end visible to the customer as well. Uh, as well, see. okay, all right. Because the customer needs to see the route taken, not just the end result. They want to be able to see the collaborative, uh, corrective measures that, that maybe take something from a place of non-compliance to a place of compliance. That process is very, very important it's because okay. the narrative is very important. And that's something else that's, that's key on the platform. So 
So another another customer, BAE Systems, uh, Digital Intelligence, uh, one of our customers, they, I mean, there's a case study, a really good case study out there um, with BAE. In fact, we're just celebrating our third year with, with BAE and, and a deepening of our commitment. Uh, and I think there's a new, there's a new piece uh, out in supply chain digital in June, uh, which will be really, really interesting. Um, but they, their, their mission was to become their supplier's customer of choice because they recognized, you know, obviously we all recognize the, 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 the damage from COVID, the disruption. Obviously there's a lot more than just COVID that has really shaped the way things are now with, 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 obviously with the Suez Canal and all of these other things that have happened relentlessly, enduringly with no let up yeah, at yeah. all, which we can, we can talk about that another, another time, but, um, the, you know, the, the market forces that have been, that have come out of that, they're very important. But I mean, the BAE said, um, the, the CPO at BAE said, um, coming off the back of the pandemic, um, category management strategies aren't going to do it alone mm. because they're focusing on the pre de facto 10, 15% margin. And when you think about the, 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 the global conditions at the moment, if we say, we're in recession or, or not. Certainly things are very, very challenging. Uh, cost of living crisis, et cetera. Um, margins shrink because business yeah. is shrinking. And yes. if you're focusing down on the margin and your business shrinks, so simple math says your margin is going to shrink too. The only mm-hmm. thing that isn't going to shrink is your value target. It's going to be, it's like inflation. It's up there still. So how do you explore that? Uh, and that was the comment from the CPO. We're going to need to find other ways to explore the value target. And we're going to do that yeah. by collaborating. And by, you know, by, by nurturing innovations with, uh, by exploring innovation with our suppliers and our supplier. And this is the pertinent point that links it back. The suppliers are going to want to do that because they're good at collaborating. They collaborate with many customers. Yeah. And so just, just linking this back to yeah. the, the question about logging in and uploading compliances, because it's all related relationship management and social audit compliance are completely related. You can't impose CSR on your suppliers. You've got to bring them on the journey. Yeah. Only way to do it, um, to bring them in, give them an equitable platform that they can log in and score KPIs and upload collateral and create the narrative themselves. And what that was one of the things that BAE said, we love the narrative behind the KPI scoring. Because okay. a, a KPI dashboard doesn't really tell us very much apart from what's yeah. green and what's red. The narrative tells us the journey we're on. And that's okay. important. And that's what so we sh- do. Okay. So, Sheldon, I want to jump quickly into the competitive landscape. Uh, you, you, what kind of solution or vendor are you competing with right now? Because there are a lot of SRM collaboration of tools out there. Yeah. So. Would you would you compete with, and what makes you know what makes you different with your other solutions? Very briefly, there yeah, because are, I, I want to cover other things. Yeah, there there is competition, and isn't it amazing? If there was no competition, quite frankly, I'd be worried because <laughs> that means there's no market. Clearly, there is a market. Fantastic. Uh, there are other companies. Uh, do you want me to name one or two? Yeah, yeah. To you. I mean, look, there's uh, Visible is one. 
Kodiak Hub is another. Both great platforms. Know them well. Um, and, 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 you know, they, they, they come at things their way. We come at things ours. And that's great. Uh, you know, so, so, so. Do you compete no. with, uh, ERP players like SAP, who has also uh-huh. SRM or? SAP Ariba. Not, not really. No. I mean, they're more spend anyway. They're one of the, the bigger kind of monolithic suites. Uh, and, and to be honest with you, we, are asked whether we can so we, look we've created an orbit of partnerships where we're, we're, we we as a as a as a best of breed solution you can't be a best of breed solution and sit there as an island you have to be able to create an orbit of partnerships yes yeah and talk in the ecosystem otherwise you, it doesn't work right mm-hmm. um so that's exactly what we've done and that includes erps as well whether it be sap or oracle um we we the only thing we haven't done. No, let's put it this way: we we we're an API first Azure architecture, so we are inherently API friendly. Um, we also uh, work in the aerospace and defence sector, as you know, um, and 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 so we haven't uh, we we haven't gone as far as advertising our endpoints. Let's put it that way. Okay. Um, I just think you know, we, we, I think that would be for us. Okay. Give, give us a size of a, of that market for you know the type of solution you provide. How big is the market right now for these kind of uh, tools? Huge. Let me. All right, so let me. I mean, I I could go I could go really I could go big picture here. Okay. <laughs> Briefly, uh, give me give me a quick some quick quick uh, quick ideas. Uh, what, what company size or global market? Yeah, global market, you know, the market global in Europe. Market, yeah. Yeah. The global market, the global enterprise B2B market is about $8.5 trillion. Okay. So if we apply the, let's, let's apply the 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 uh, 80-20 rule to that, you know, so you've got this $8.5 trillion market of B2B companies with an 80-20 rule, you've got the top 20% is 80% of the volume. Okay, just, just, just you know, just, just for mm. user parity rule for that but in your um, space uh, Sheldon you know how big is right, that so this market is what, yeah, yeah so this is what I'm coming to so, so you've got you got that's a big chunk of companies okay now the top 25% of the companies across that this is typically where we would have been leading so these are the enterprise type organizations that that run you know complex supply chains across multiple sectors across multiple geographies as well uh, the platform works for, for, for companies that operate nationally or, or, or globally um, but if, I've got to say, for, so the, the, the enterprise market is a very, very big place. Interestingly, okay, I say I see the mid market as a very, very important area. The mid market has a lot of the same challenges that the enterprise market does. Okay, um, why shouldn't they have the same? solutions and benefits available to them um i think it's very very important uh, and as a market it's a bigger market anyway if you think of the market like this as a using my hands i know we're on a podcast but if you think of a market like a pyramid um with the enterprise sector at the top obviously the mid sector the, the middle of that pyramid is a is is a is a is a bigger market uh for us um 
and, and we okay. actually launch we launch officially to the mid market in November this year. Although we are speaking to mid market clients now as well who are, who are approaching us. Okay, we have ten minutes left, and I also I want to jump in into uh, very quickly. What is your re- revenue model? How do you make money right now with Subico? We're, we're a true SaaS. Uh, okay. We, we we're a true SaaS company. Uh, most of the companies that, that that use the platform at the moment are all they've invariably gone for an annual purchase. So it's so it's a, it's a true SaaS subscription service, yes. Okay. Um, but we are we have built a, a, a subscription frequency optionable base on you know uh, you can pay by you know, monthly, quarterly, etc. Uh, for for the for the uh, for the mid sector, uh, it's all been built, just never been used because it was all enterprise. <laughs> it was interesting. We bought we we've initially built our solution and it was fully integrated with a payment gateway, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you, 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 you put in the details, it spins up the, the, the Azure yeah. environment, web hooks straight out into the gateway. Everything happens. It's beautiful. And the first customer said to us, well, we don't want to do that. We just <laughs> want to give you a, we want to give you an invoice, give us a purchase order. Okay. So, um, and look, and to be honest, it's 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 quite typical of bigger enterprise companies that they don't want to sell the yeah. direct debit. They just want to mm. give you a purchase order, and that's fine. Um, so we then unpicked some of the integrated auto gateways and, and whatnot and, and webhooks and and created a manual version. Well, it's exactly okay. the same way; it just doesn't push out to the gateways. Um, so yes. Very briefly, what has been the impact of the pandemic on you and, and your business? It's been good, bad, mix? It's a brilliant question. Brilliant question. Because we launched to prod April 2020. So we're a young company, really, aren't we? We're still a startup. Um, so we, we did all this prep. We trialed across different organizations. We did four live trial uh, product fit trials across BAE systems as well across the group in, in the early days. Really, really, really well, well done and very successful. But then the pandemic happened. <laughs> so you launched. So thought, great. What do we do now? Everybody's going in a furlough. No one's going to buy anything from us. We're a complete unknown. What do we do? So we thought, right, well, we're not going to try and sell anything, but who's going to buy anything from us? As I said, they're all going home. To work well, not to work with fellow. Um, so we decided to hire a PR company and double down on PR by building our brand awareness without selling anything. I'm not going to waste money, and it would have been a waste of money on sales, it just would. No one was buying anything. So we sponsored shows, we did talks. I've been in the industry a long time, as, a, as, as you now know, so uh, it kind of wheeled me out. Um, to, to, to do panel talks and, and keynotes and all the rest of it. And I did all of that and it created a really good backdrop for our company. And what that did was to generate inbound. Yeah. And in 2021, we first licensed BAE systems. Halfway through the year, we, we did our first case study with BAE and then we did another PR exercise. We did a press release wrapping it around the case study and we pushed that out to market. Uh, in, in conjunction with a big kind of PR exercise of shows and talks and 
And then again, it created this wave of inbound, which is, and if you're going to create this wave of inbound, you've got to ensure that you have a backdrop of, in, of, of collateral that those inbound interested people are going to see that is going to convince them to push a, you know, explore yeah. button, say hello okay. button. And, that, and that's what, that's what we did. So it's been a very unique experience for us. I would, apart the you know, pandemic aside and the horror of that, it was in fact a uniquely, can I say, enjoyable experience? I don't, yeah. I don't mean the pandemic. I mean a very the, unique the, experience. Yeah, unique. Yes, been a very unique yeah. experience. Um, but it, but it, but it's, um, but what it does, I'll tell you what it does. It ensures you build a solid foundation. Okay. So a lot of a lot of companies, as you know, if they if they if they are a very 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 sales driven company, and they're a startup, that normally comes at the expense of building everything else. Yeah. Sales, sales, um, uh, and that can expose a number of other challenges when maybe sales drop, uh, and you're you're you've built a big. You've built a bit of a, a heavy lot, a heavy fixed overhead because you've been sales driven. Suddenly your sales drop. You've still got the big fixed overhead. Then what do you do? And, yeah. and, and, and so we, 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 we built things in a way that means we're very capital efficient, uh, and, and have got a very good runway. Okay. Before. Talking about challenges, you know, what, what would be your biggest challenge today? What really, I mean, and I know you, you, you have probably hundreds of things that you have to worry about, but, what would be your biggest thing that keep you awake at night right now? Another pandemic. Um, <laughs> um, in in running and growing your business. Um, it's interesting. So the biggest, the the so the in, ensuring the our R and D, uh, our build, and our R and D can keep pace with everything coming in the front door okay because you don't just sell and build new partnerships and sell on the basis of what you've got now you constantly iterate you're constantly driving through new new innovations and tweaks and changes and 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 customers that come on they want all of that and i completely get it because that's what we're offering but you've got to be able to get that relationship right. And it's not easy to do that. It's not easy to get your back end machinery to ebb and flow with your front end. Um, it's, it's, it's how, difficult. Yeah. But how do you, I mean, I know you're getting feedback and, you know, for improvements on new features and from your customers and they want certain things. But as a SaaS company, you cannot implement everything that your customers are telling you to do, right? So how do you, how do you prioritize? Do you, do you get people to vote for it or do you, how do you evaluate how important those new improvement of features are? We, we have a, we have a, we have a product team. We have a CTO that's also a product manager. I'm also, That's the other thing about being a non-tech founder. You are, at least at the outset, you are the product manager. Yeah. You're everything. You make the tea. You're the product manager. You see it. You do everything. As when you start as a non-founder, we've grown since then. But I still, I still have an extremely vested interest in the product. So I'm involved in that. Alistair's involved in that. 
we got other guys that are involved in that. Kevin, we got all these different guys that, that feed into uh, into what's good. We we call it the, the test is um, ultimately is it so what functionality? If it's okay. so what functionality, then it gets parked. So how do you see? Well, we've got a few more minutes. Very briefly, how do you see Supeco in a, in in a few years from now? What do you want to be? Um, in one sentence, we want to be the trusted, the number one trusted relationship platform for companies and suppliers everywhere. Okay, all right. What would be your advice to a, a founder who wants to start a company today in a, in the field of supply chain? That's a great question. I, I don't know how long I've got to answer it. Okay. I would, I, I'd say do it. Okay. I would be do it with your eyes open. It's not easy. You're going to have sleepless nights, but it's, if you've got passion for it, do it. If you don't have passion for it, do not do it because the passion is what's going to get you through. It's going to get you through. No passion. Forget it. Do something else. That's the first thing I'd say. It's so important because it is a very, very, very tough thing. There's no doubt about it. And just because you grow and get some success, it's still tough. And there'll be other decisions that will keep you that will keep you up at night. You know, you've, you've got to have passion and and and, and almost you've almost you've got to have passion. You've got to have a north star. Really understand your vision and your mission, as you just asked me. You've got to have that. Keep it there. Because and know that it's there. Because on an ongoing basis, it will be there, but you'll forget about it because you'll be so into the detail sometimes. Uh, and you've got to stay true to that. And and because and what I mean is, you'll you've got to have a degree of pig-headed stubbornness about you. Yeah, in a way, I agree. It, it's a crazy <laughs> thing. Passion, pig-headed stubbornness. Whilst knowing, whilst you are being pig-headed and stubborn, that your North Star is there and you're still heading towards it. Yeah. Because if you're pig-headed and stubborn and you've ignored your North Star and you're going over there, then that's a different kind of pig-headed and stubborn, which isn't helpful. Yeah. Um, so yeah, a, lot, that, a lot of discipline as well, right? You need to have discipline, yeah. Tons and tons and tons of discipline. I would say be... At a time like this, with, with with where we are, you need to ensure that you build a a capital efficient model. Keep your burn rate as low as possible. If you are speaking to uh, institutional invest, well, any investors, they will want to see a capital efficient organisation. They will want to yeah. see a decent burn rate uh, and to see that you that that you're running things efficiently and well. And also say, look after yourself. As yeah. a founder, because if you think of that passionate, stubborn person that that's pig-headed uh, and, and head down and, and, and in the craziness of it all, that does kind of describe someone that that might have might have some wellness issues, doesn't it? Absolutely, <laughs> and they may well do. But you you've got to look after your health as well. Okay, it's very very important. All right. Thank you, Sheldon. So I've got a few more questions, quick ones, uh, and, and then we can wrap up this interview. Um, Cats or dogs? Dogs. Window or aisle? Uh, 
style. Okay. What's one? Can you name one movie that you've seen that you really like recently? One movie <laughs> comes to your mind right away. Uh, uh, God, I, I just I just saw John Wick. Uh, oh, okay, all right. John Wick Four. Okay. I felt I was I felt I was in the middle of a video. Like, oh my God. <laughs> it was pure violence from start to finish. Literally, start to finish, pure violence. <laughs> being in the middle of a video game. Okay. Uh, what? I didn't see it. I, I, I'm not a big fan of John Wick. Uh, what is your favorite sandwich? Um, or lunch? Season tomato toasty at the moment. Okay. What's your most used app on your phone? The app that you always use, always open. LinkedIn. Isn't that awful? <laughs> okay. All right. What's your favorite tool to build your company? Uh, do you know what my favorite tool is? Canva. Oh, really? I okay. absolutely love, love, love Canva. It's okay. fantastic. But, you, but you're not a designer, so you, you, you know. I, well, you, no, I, lo- yeah. I love it. I love, I love, love it. it. Okay. I love playing with it. <laughs> what would be the rest of your life after you know you retire and you get much older in just a few words what do you want to be and what do you want to do I will consult I will carry on doing what I'm doing now this is what I do and I love it whether it be running Sapico or consulting or consulting for Sapico or consulting in the industry and I will be riding a bike okay because I'll keep cycling Okay, where, where, where will you be riding a bike uh, in the UK or in other countries? Hopefully up one, two or something like that, which I've done before and it was a lot of fun. So hopefully somewhere on the continent or maybe in okay. California uh, because I've ridden my bike. I did the coast of California and it was the most incredible bucket list thing I've ever done. So okay. I'd like to do it again. All right. Thank you very much, Sheldon. That was a great interview. Uh, you know, we spent a, a, bit, a bit of time on your background, uh, but it was okay, quite interesting to to know uh, how rich and diverse, you know, and uh, how many things you've done before uh, setting up uh, Supeco. So, again, th- thank you uh, for your time. That was really enjoyable. Loved talking through that uh, with you, Max. Thank you very much. Thanks again for listening to us. This was, again, Chentech uh, podcast uh, with our guest today, Sheldon Mida, CEO of Supico. We look forward again to uh, see you, hear you from, from you. If you have, again, any questions for us, please do get in touch, and uh, we'll see you again at the next episode. Thanks a lot, Sheldon. We'll see you next time. Thanks, guys. Bye now. 